Today we're going to talk about Megillat Esther. I want to begin by saying that uh, in 1996 I wrote my dissertation uh, about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The actual title of my dissertation was Sectarian Movements in the Late Second Temple Period in the Light of Discoveries at Qumran. In fact, I'm going to uh, put the summary and introduction to my dissertation um, as a PDF on the uh, on the share um, on the on the web page on www.rabbidana.com, so you can see what it's about. Um, I, I found the Dead Sea Scrolls a fascinating topic at that stage. I spent a lot of time um, researching it. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of research since then, but I, you know, in the 1990s, there was a, a period of what I called rediscovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were originally discovered, for those of you who don't know the story, in 1947, a, an Arab, Bedouin Arab um, shepherd was looking for his goats. They'd run away and they'd stumbled into a cave. As it turned out, the cave contained containers, um, pottery containers, in which there were scrolls. It was a library. And uh, further down the line, they discovered that there were 11 caves. Um, all of them contained these containers with, uh, with scrolls that had been preserved from a sect that lived in Qumran, uh, which is in the Dead Sea area of Israel. And the, it was a library of mainly um, biblical works. Um, so all the things that we are familiar with from Tanakh, and various other religious texts, and also a description of the sect themselves and how they lived their lives. Um, if you go to the Shrine of the Book in, in Jerusalem, you can see, for example, the Isaiah Scroll, which is the whole of the Book of Isaiah, which is one of the longest books in Tanakh, preserved almost identical with the uh, Yeshaya that we are familiar with. Qu quite an incredible discovery. Uh, it was, in 1947, it fell mainly into the hands of a group of um, scholars in East Jerusalem, at that time it was Jordan, uh, and, they, uh, and they were charged with the task of researching these scrolls and producing uh, scholarly works, scholarly books, based on their discoveries once they had deciphered the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew of these scrolls. And it was a very, very slow process. And it became evident as time wore on that it was agenda-driven. That means these were all devout Christians, and they were specifically Catholics, and they were very intent on producing um, material that, I guess, chimed with their view of uh, Christian history vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Jewish sectarians of the late Second Temple period. To cut a long story short, uh, in 1991, there was a massive change. Um, talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a massive change in the scholarly approach to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they began to produce, it was a new team, they produced many more works, and it, as I say, it was like a rediscovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran Scrolls. I wrote my dissertation particularly on a fascinating scroll. I've got the book here in the Beit Midrash, it's here at the back. Um, that's uh, the book that was pr produced by the official, um, uh, the official team of the Dead Sea Scroll scholars, um, about the MMT scroll, Miktsat Masei Torah. The MMT scroll was a scroll that reflected the style of the Talmud. That's what's so interesting. It reflected the style of the Talmud, of the Mishnah. But it was written from a parallel perspective. So whereas the Mishnah was written for rabbinic Jews, what we refer to as rabbinic Jews, in those days it was referred to as Pharisees, uh, uh, the uh, Pirushim, what the, the MMT scroll was, uh, uh, was written for, the group that it was written for, uh, were the 
um, with the Tzidukim, very, very religious Sadducees. Now, you know, in the Mishnah, for example, in Rosh Hashanah, the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah speaks about the calendar system. The calendar system that we Jews have is based around months of the moon, right? In fact, there's no such thing as a solar month. Are you aware of that? There's no such thing as a solar month. There's a solar year and a lunar month. And you know that the Jews, we go by the, by the lunar month, and every three or four years, we have an extra month to make up for the 11 days that get lost. If you keep 12 lunar months, you lose 11 days because it's 354 versus 365 days in a solar year. So to make up for that, we add a month, about every three to four years, it, it varies. Um, we have a cycle of 19 years. Our calendar works on 19 years. And there's seven leap years during those 19 years, okay? The Muslims only have lunar months. They don't consider the solar year important, which is why Ramadan can happen at any time of the year. The Christians keep a solar year and what they did was, is they created an artificial calendar of 12 months that's not based on anything other than a division of the solar year into 12 parts. But it's not, the lunar month is 29 or 30 days, right? But the solar months, which don't really exist, because they're not based on anything to do with the sun, is either 30 or 31 days, except for February, which is 28 days, or 29 in a leap year, because they also have to make up for a loss of time, because um, every four years there's a quarter day extra, it's 365 and a quarter days. That's how long the solar year is. Okay, the reason I'm telling you this, the reason I'm telling you this, and by the way, this has nothing whatsoever to do with the shear. I just, this is a typical Pini Duna aside, okay? So a marginal discussion that has nothing to do with what I'm going to teach you today. The reason I'm telling you this is because the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah teaches us that, first of all, teaches us how to uh, conduct ourselves as Jews in terms of establishing the time of the new month, what we call a Chodesh, right? The new month. So today we have it preset. But in those days, there wasn't a preset calendar of 19 years of a cycle. Every single month, witnesses would go to Jerusalem. They would appear in front of the rabbis at the Sanhedrin and they would give testimony about the sliver of the new moon that they could see in a place where it was completely dark, away from any urbanized area. And they'd spotted the new moon. They knew roughly when it was going to happen. It was either one night or another night. They knew and they would all gather there. They would come to Jerusalem, give testimony, and the new month would be declared. Now, that's this is before the age of cell phones and phones and communication. How are you going to let the people in Bovel know when the new month has started? Why is it important? Well, if the, if the new month is established, it has to be on a particular day because otherwise you won't know when the festivals are. So, for example, Pesach, you don't want to eat chometz on Pesach. So if you're going to make Rosh Chodesh a day later and start Pesach a day later, then the, I'm talking about in Bovel, and in Yerushalayim they did it a day earlier, that means you'd eat, you would eat chometz on Pesach in Bovel. So they set up beacons all over the land of Israel, going from one place to another. It's described in the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah, and it could be seen eventually, all the different beacons, one after another after another, could be seen all the way to Bavel. So within a very short period of time, over the course of that night, they would light these beacons, and in Bavel they would discover it's Rosh Chodesh, and they would never make a mistake. What is the one month where that wasn't possible? Rosh Hashanah. That's why we keep two days Rosh Hashanah. Because you can't light fires on Rosh Hashanah to tell people when, when it is, right? You can't have all this testimony. So Rosh Hashanah is at the beginning of the month. They knew it's either the 29th or the 30th day. So you know when it is, but you kept two days Rosh Hashanah. It's not No, no. It's a, absolutely a practical, a practical thing. Absolutely right. It's a practical thing 
that you need to that you need to have two days Rosh Hashanah because it's the first day of the month, the only one. It's the only one which is the first day of the month. Shavuos is another interesting case in point because you know we don't have a date in the in the Torah. Shavuos doesn't have a date because it's it's uh, it's meant to be the end of Svirah Saomer. We know the date, but by the way, it can be different as well. The date because in our calendar it can't. But in the ancient calendar, it could have been on more than one day because what happens if there's two days, uh, if the Rosh Iyar is earlier or later or Rosh Sivan is earlier or later, right? If, you're, if you are determining the time of Rosh as a result of testimony, then the day of, of Rosh is going to be dependent on the testimony. So it could be different. In our calendar, it's been fixed. So we know when, when Shavuos is. But to come back to the mission in Rosh Hashanah, the mission Rosh Hashanah teaches us that, or tells us, informs us that there was a group of people called the Baisusim. You ever heard of the Baisusim? No, no, they don't exist anymore. It's a sect that has disappeared. Baisusim were extremist tzidukim. But we only know that now. We thought they're just troublemakers. They used to light the beacons on the wrong day they would light the beacons on the wrong day to subvert the rabbinic calendar. Now, we always thought they're just troublemakers. They're tzidukim. By Susim, hate the rabbis. There was a lot of sectarian division and rivalry. They hate the rabbis. And therefore, they would light these beacons because they wanted to mislead people about the time, the time of Rosh Chodesh. It was a way of undermining the authority of the rabbis in Jerusalem. Why they did it? The Mishnah doesn't say. We know now. Only because of the discoveries at Qumran and the MMT scroll. Do you know who they were? They were Tzidukim who kept the solar calendar. They were very religious Tzidukim, but they didn't believe in the lunar calendar. They believed in a solar calendar. Their entire year, their Pesach and their Shavuos and everything that they kept was based on a solar calendar. So the rabbis took control of the calendar at some stage during the time of the second Beis HaMikdosh. They were, of course, extremely angry. The very Frum ones moved to Qumran, where they kept their own Yomim Tovim at the time they were meant to keep it. And they criticized the authorities in Jerusalem as being heretics and disgusting people. And they did everything in their power to subvert the authority of the rabbis. So the MMT scroll... By the way, it doesn't talk about this particular subject, but talks about other matters where in the Mishnah we see the rabbis had one opinion. And another opinion is described, which is the opinion of the Tzidukim. And those Tzidukim also wrote a Mishnah. That Mishnah is the MMT scroll in which they describe their opinion as being correct and the rabbis' opinion as being wrong. Okay. I'm just giving you a background as to who these people were. Very punctilious, very um, uh, zealous uh, tzidukim who kept their law according to the way they understood it and could consider themselves to be religious Jews in their, in their way, in their sectarian way. Every single book of Tanakh, there's 24 books in Tanakh in, in the Hebrew scriptures, what the Christians call the Old Testament, 24 books, okay? Actually, it's more. Uh, just to give you an example, we know that there's Yeshua Aleph and Yeshua Base. There's Shoftim Aleph and Shoftim Base, right? Melochim Aleph, Melochim Base. So there's, there's more than 24 books because Yeshua comes under one title and Shoftim comes under one title and Melochim comes under one title, okay? There's something called Treasar, Treasar is one book. How many, how many books is it made of? Twelve. It's twelve, right? It's each one of the minor prophets has their own books. It's more really than 24 books. Anyway, there's Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Torah is the five books of Moses. Nevi'im is the prophets, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Those are the prophets. What? Yeah, no, these, each one of these has their own book, right? Yeshaya is its own book, okay? And Yecheskel is its own book. Yermia is its own book. And the Ksuvim 
We also have book, uh, the most famous book in the Ksuvim is Tehillim, right? We read the Tehillim. But there's another five books in Ksuvim which are, which are called the Megillus. Each one is their own Megillah. One of them is Eicha, uh, right? It's, it describes the destruction of the first base Hamikdash. Another one is Shir Hashirim, Rus, okay, Koheles, and Esther. Every single one of the books of the Hebrew Scriptures was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Is represented, some of them completely, like Yeshaya, others in fragments, which they've identified over the years. You know, sometimes you just have like a fragment and it's got a line here and a line there. You just, you can work out where it's from because we're familiar with the, with the Hebrew text of, of Tanakh, except for one, yeah. Esther. Megillah's Esther, the book of Esther, is not found anywhere in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hundreds of thousands of fragments. Do you understand what I'm just saying? Hundreds of thousands of fragments of Hebrew scripture in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not one word of Esther. You've got every single book represented, not necessarily the whole book, but some part of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, except for Esther. So this is something which has puzzled scholars. You can look this up afterwards. You don't have to take my word for it. This is something that's been written up by many, many scholars of, uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls and historians in general as to why the Dead Sea sectarians um, did not want to include Esther as part of their Tanakh. Clearly, that's the answer, right? They didn't want it. But there's one answer, really. I mean, whatever answer you're going to come up with, there's one answer. And it's a very simple answer. It's the only book of the Tanakh which is completely secular. God isn't mentioned. In the whole of Megillus Esther, you don't have one mention of the name of God. Not only that, you don't have a prophet. Who are the heroes of, uh, of Megillus Esther? There's four main characters in Megillus Esther. Achashverosh is the king. Homan is the villain. Achashverosh is his friend, right? He, so he starts off as a villain and then he ends up as a friend of the heroes. And there's two heroes. There is Mordechai, Hayyuhudi, the Jew, and Esther, his relative, his cousin, niece, whatever it is, who is the queen. Neither of those two people are particularly religious, right? Mordechai is the gatekeeper in the palace. Yes, he gets very nervous about about the decree against the Jews, and he fasts, but there's no mention of God in that. No mention of religion. Okay? The queen, what type of queen is she? If she a Jewish queen, if she marries a non-Jewish king. So the whole story is a very secular story. It, has, it doesn't resonate in any kind of um, religious connotation. There's no mention of God, there's no mention of religion. So the Dead Sea sectarians were hardcore fanatics in terms of their faith. Their, the whole style of writing in their writings, I'm talking about when they write about themselves, is this apocalyptic prophecy style. That's the way they wrote. For them, the book of Esther is, you know, is a secular book. It's like buying a, a fiction book or, you know, some type of storybook a biography in, in, the, uh, in a bookshop, in a bookstore. They didn't want to include this in the religious text, so it's totally excluded. It doesn't exist as a religious text, as far as the Dead Sea sectarians are concerned. That's a very long introduction to this week's share, because I'm going to talk about our own approach to Esther, because we are Jews, after three and a half thousand years, well, it's just it's under three, three, I think this year was, uh, this past Shavuos was 3,330 years since we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Okay? So it's going to be 3,331 years since we became a Jewish nation. We assume that everything that we do is directed by God or by one of his prophets or by some type of faith text, let's call it that, 
a faith text. What's a faith text? A faith text can be a parshas mishpotim. It doesn't necessarily mean that when we're told, um, you know, that we have to honor our parents in the Ten Commandments, that that's a religious, it's not a religious text in terms of it mentioning God, necessarily. By the way, Ten Commandments is a bad example. But just taking that as an example, or when it says that, you know, if you, uh, um, if you see somebody who's poor, you have to lend them money. It doesn't seem like a faith text. But everything that we have is guided by faith and is considered a faith text. Megillus Esther is not a faith text. It doesn't really have any faith connotation. The story is of a group of people who were threatened with genocide and they were lucky enough that a member of their team, their tribe, was married to the king and ma managed to subvert the plot to kill them all and take control of the country. That's really, that's, that's the story. Painted as, as you want, the overarching narrative here is one of deliverance from certain death through political means. That's really what it was. Esther was married to the right person, the right bloke. She was married to the king. And she managed to find out about the plot one way or another. And then she went to the king and she thought how she could get away with it. And she managed to denounce the plotter, who was the king's friend, and take control of the kingdom. So it's a, it's a political victory. There's nothing religious about it. Fasting and praying and preparing. Doesn't say to who. By the way, it could be praying to anyone. Who are we praying to? Could be praying to some Persian god. It doesn't say they were praying to God. It says fast. Why? It doesn't really say. There's no context given to the fasting. God is not mentioned in the Megillah. So how do we understand that? If we understand that our religious texts are driven by faith, how are we to understand a narrative that seems to be a story about a political victory and that has no connection to God. Really, no overt connection to God. How are we to understand that? So that's the very long, very long introduction. So we're going to begin with, a, this is the introduction to a commentary on Megillus Esther by somebody called Emmanuel the Roman. Emmanuel the Roman, as you can see, was born in 1270 died in 30, around 1330. He was a very interesting man. He was a Hebrew poet. And he um, discusses this whole concept. I'm going to read the Hebrew and translate as I go along. And that which I need to let you know right here, before we begin the book, is that we need to research the reason why is it that in this entire book we do not find any of the names that are used in terms of reference to God? It would have been entirely appropriate for this book, Megillat Esther, to be full of references to God in terms of praises and um, uh, thank yous and a, uh, to talk about the great kindnesses of God. Because of what he did, he, the wondrous things that he did with that generation, the many miracles, wonders, that God showed them. And the, um, all the different reasons that uh, surrounded their, uh, their deliverance from certain death, their rescue. So the, what he is saying, what Emmanuel the Roman is saying is that it, not only should God's name be mentioned, it makes no sense that God's name is not mentioned. Why would God's name not be mentioned in a book that is really there to tell us how wonderful God was to this generation, the Yeshlomar. And he offers the following solution. And by the way, this is a solution that's not just his. This is reflected in other commentaries. I've just taken 
um, his one because it's expressed so clearly and articulately. V'yesh lomar. B'tshuvat ha-she'ilah hazot. In answer to this um, unbelievable question, this puzzle. She'kol zehaya b'kavanat mechuvan. This was totally intentional. God's absence from the Megillah is intentional. The author of the Megillah intended to exclude God's name. Vuhu, and why is that? Shamalachim arishonim shayubedorotahem hayubetachlit hageut. You have to understand the Megillah wasn't written by Moshe Rabbeinu, and it wasn't written by Shmuel Hanavi. It was written hundreds of years later in a time when there was enormous arrogance among the leaders, the kings of that era. And they would attribute all the great things and the bad things that would happen in their day. As a result of their power, their ability and their wisdom. So anything that happened in that particular era, uh, in, in national or international affairs, was something with, which would automatically be attributed by the leader to something that they had done, that their powers, their abilities. The one thing you could be certain of is that you would never say that the reason something happened was because God had made it happen. God wanted it to happen. That God was involved in its um, initiation. You'd also find And there were many among them who in fact referred to themselves as gods. Not just that they were that they were the geniuses who had managed to do whatever had happened or achieved that particular result. But the reason they'd achieved that result is because they were gods. And they, and they would tell everybody around them that they had to be worshipped. By the way, this resonates with our understanding of what happened in the Megillah, right? What did Haman want everybody to do? To bow down to him. What, what, why bow down to him? So we... You know, today, bowing down is seen as something polite, right? So when you meet somebody, you might bow gently towards them. When you meet the Queen of England, you'll bow, you'll curtsy. But that is, uh, you know, it's not politeness. You know where that comes from. Bowing is submission, right? We see it in the Torah. What is bowing? Bowing is submission to the other's power. And you prostrate yourself on the floor you're basically saying, I am nothing in your presence. The lower down you bow, the more you're acknowledging that you are nothing in that other's presence. When people bow down before a king, they weren't bowing down because they were being polite. It's not like shaking somebody's hand or saying, hello, good morning. You bow down before the king because the king, with a flick of his wrist or of his thumb, could, could send you to your death. That was the power of a king. But they extended that power. They, when any, anything happened, when anything happened in terms of, you know, the activities or uh, the affairs of a country or beyond the country's borders, they would say it's all us. The reason it happened is us and nobody questioned it. It was obvious it was them because they're the most powerful person on the planet to the extent that kings would um, say about themselves, or it would be said about them, that they are gods, they're deities. Haman, and this is referred to in Chazal, he, they, they say he hung a deity around his neck, possibly, or he himself was uh, projecting this concept, this idea, that he was a deity. And by Mordechai bowing down to Haman, he's bowing down to a deity. And he can't do that because that's Avodah so what Emmanuel, the Roman, is saying is that in ancient times, this was perfectly normal to take on um, the role of being the all-powerful, almighty. That's where the word comes from, right? The almighty in a particular place. And that is a problem. Why is it a problem? Um, let, let me just continue with this. Um, 
even those, and this perhaps is a reference to the Haman of Chazal, even those who themselves, they didn't um, suggest that they were gods, would nevertheless, as a result of their power, demand that the people they ruled over would serve their god. And that anybody who lived in their vicinity and was under their rule, in their power, would acknowledge the fact that everything that happened to them was as a result of the God that they subscribed to. And therefore, here we have the reason. Mordechai in his wisdom saw He decided that the only way to deliver this miraculous story involving God, Hashem, was to do so in the form of a narrative. The only reason why anything happens in the story, if you read it, is because it's a bunch of lucky coincidences. That's, it just happenstance. It just happened to be that, Marda, that Vashti was rude and that Mordechai's niece was beautiful and that she married Achashverosh, and then Haman at that particular time plotted against the Jews, and that Esther was well placed to subvert that plan. But it's all a question of lucky coincidences. That's the way the story is presented by Mordechai, but he did so deliberately. Because had he wanted to ascribe those events to God, he might have, uh, what might have resulted is that Achashverosh, the king, would have become extremely angry. What? You're suggesting that there's a God other than me or other than my God? What are you saying? If it's just a series of lucky coincidences that don't involve God, then Achashverosh can't have any complaint if he reads the text of the Megillah. But if he reads the text of, of Megillat Esther as it was first presented by Mordechai when it was written in that first year, and he would see Hashem, 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 he would get very angry because every time it says Hashem, it's not saying Achashverosh. Every time it mentions God, it's demeaning the king. That would not be acceptable. So Mordechai left God's name out. The gum. And also, anybody else who might have wanted to translate, transcribe this story into his own language would have taken the name of God, it's very easy to do, and replace it with another name, with their God. So, for example, I'm just giving you one example. Let's say Baal is the god that they worship. I have no idea what they worshipped in ancient Persia or in any of the other areas of that time. But let's say Baal was the the god who they worshipped. And they read Megillat Esther and it says Hashem, 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 Hashem in in every sentence. Then every time the name of Hashem is mentioned in the Megillah, they're just going to, they're going to change it. Exchange it for the name of Baal. And suddenly the Megillah is not Megillat Esther with God, it's Megillat Esther with Baal. So we know we have this ancient source which tells us that when the Kutim wrote or translated the Bible, the, the story, the creation narrative, what did they do? They wrote the name of their God, Ashima, in the name of God, instead of the name of God. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. That's the way we have it in our Bible. But in their Bible, it said, Bereshit bara Ashima. In the beginning, as it were, Ashima created. Why did they do that? Because that was their God. They didn't recognize Elohim. They only recognized Ashima. And therefore, Ra'abachoch matolich tov sipur ha'inyan bilvad. For that reason, Mordechai decided only to include the details of the story itself and not to embellish it. I'm not saying embellishment as a a term of exaggeration, but not to decorate it, embellish it 
with the name of God, who obviously was behind every, uh, um, every part of the story. So he wrote it in such a way that if you read it, it's just a story that happened that way, particular um, lucky list of coincidences. And he didn't mention God. And he didn't mention at all any aspect of the divine influence that was involved in this story's occurrence. So the first approach that we're seeing here is that Mordechai, sensitive to the literary fraud of his time, in addition to which he was sensitive to the fact that kings would take, uh, you know, if they'd hear a story about some great thing that happened, they would say, yeah, we're the ones who did it, we did it, we did it, right? So both of those reasons motivated him to write the story in such a way that it wouldn't, first of all, make the local king, Achashverosh, angry, and second of all, wouldn't lend itself in a future time for anybody to take it and exchange the name of God with the name of their particular deity. That's approach number one. Let's now look at Ibn Ezra. Because there's another issue here. If you're going to suggest that this story is devoid of the name of God, why write it down at all? What is the point of Megillat Esther? If you could read this story as a piece of literary genius, a fantastic story, as you say in England, a great yarn, right? It's a, just a wonderful story. What's the point of including it in Tanakh? Leave it out. Have it, you know, by the way, there's apocryphal works, which we didn't include in Tanakh. There's you know, works of all kinds. So I, I'll give you an example. We, we spoke about it at Hanukkah time. There's the book of Maccabees, right? Two books of Maccabees, which tell the stories uh, relating to the revolt against the Greeks. Wonderful books, two wonderful books. Very interesting, full of incredible detail, not included in Tanakh. Why? Chazal decided they're great stories, but they've got nothing. They're not holy books. Why was Megillat Esther included in Tanakh? Just leave it out. We'll still have it. It's not like we're not going to have it. Just don't include it as part of the Hebrew Scriptures. So what was the reason it was included? And we're going to see now that Ibn Ezra um, discusses this in great detail. The first is, and I've, I gave a share on this a couple of years ago, on this particular pasuk. The pasuk is in Megillat Esther, chapter Dalad, pasuk Yudalad. Ki im hacharesh tachrishi ba'et hazot. Mordechai is involved, engaged in a battle with Esther regarding strategy. She wants to do things one way, and Mordechai wants to do things another way. And he's getting a little frustrated with her because she seems to be reluctant to act on the basis that she feels her life will be in danger. So she doesn't want to act hastily. She doesn't want to do something which is tactically a mistake. And she is much more conservative in her approach. Mordechai is, let's go in there, guns blazing, and tell Achashverosh that Haman is a terrible man. And she's saying, no, that's not the way to do it. I've got another idea, etc. But in the midst of this discussion, this backwards and forwards discussion between Mordechai, who's not in front of Esther, he's at the, in front of the gate of the palace, and she's inside the palace, and there's messengers going backwards and forwards, and he sends her the following message. If you keep silent in this particular period, in this crisis, you should know, says Mordechai, Relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. Don't think that you're the only person that can deliver the Jews. That deliverance is certain to come. Okay? I'm going to say something more, says Mordechai. You and the house of your father will be obliterated. You will no longer exist. That means the Jews will be delivered but you'll be written out of the story. You will not exist. Umi yodea, he added. And who knows? Im le'et kazot higat le'malchut. 
if it wasn't for this particular reason that you attained this royal position. In other words, Esther, remember, one way or another, this story is going to have a happy ending. And if you're not involved, you'll disappear off the scene. That's your choice. And you need to know that when you're in a position like the position you find yourself in, it didn't happen for nothing. Clearly, this is not a coincidence. You were put in this position for this particular uh, um, moment in time. You are, you have the chance to change history. You are in this position for that. Says the Ibn Ezra. There is no mention in the entire Megillah of God's name. How is it possible in that case that it's considered a holy book? Many people answer that when Mordechai made this oblique reference in his exchange with Esther to something that he refers to as from another place, don't believe that when he references makom acher that he's referring to God. No, it's not God. Ibn Ezra is a literalist. The name of God that we understand. What do we say when we go to a shiva? How do we translate the word makom? God, the Almighty. May the Almighty comfort you among all those who are grieving for Zion and Jerusalem. Okay? Hamakom. So many of the commentaries say that when it says in the Pasuk, Revach Hatsala Yamod Yahudim Mi Makom Acher, that the Makom is referring to God, that God's name is mentioned in the Megillah, says the Ibn Ezra, what a bunch of nonsense. Mi Makom Acher is not God's name. Why? The There's no reference to the name of God in any book in the whole of Tanakh as Makom. God is never referred to as Makom in Tanakh. Who referred to him as Makom? Chazal. Right? What do we say in the Haggadah? Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu. That's from the time of Chazal. The Haggadah was produced at the time of Chazal. We know that the name Makom, as referring to God, is something that only emerged at the time of Chazal, at the time of the Talmud. Not at the time, this is 500 years before Chazal. So the name Makom has got nothing to do in the Megillah with God. Why did they call God Makom? Because every place is full of his glory. Okay, let's look at the Pasuk again. Relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter. What do you mean? If you're going to say it's from God, what you should say is, What's the word? The word doesn't fit there. So therefore, says the Ibn Ezra, makes no sense. Dismisses this idea completely. Mimakom acher, in other words, has no ambiguity to it. Either you will save the Jews, Esther, or someone else will save the Jews, or some other circumstance will save the Jews. But that's not a reference to God. Vanachon be'inai, says the Ibn Ezra, Shezot hamagilah chibra mordechai, the Megillah, as we know, Esther was written by Mordechai HaYehudi. And the Persians copied it. In those days, there was no printing. You know what they had as a printing works? Are you aware of this, by the way? How did they print books before the printing press? How did they do it? If they wanted, you know, lots of people wanted to have a Bible, what did they do? They had a room with 50 people. And they had a big version of it at the front. And there were people there who were copyists, right? And they would, they would create what was called a hataka, right? It's a 
copy of the original. How do we have the Gemara, the Talmud? The printing press, the first, the first Talmud wasn't printed until the late 1400s, by which time it was a thousand years old. So how do we have the Talmud? The people used to copy it, literally copy it, write it. Not like the Torah, which is written in a special script. It was copied out. How do we have Megillat Esther? The Persians, in those days, copied out the text of the Megillah from Mordechai's original. Says the Ibn Ezra. What did they do with this composition? They included it in the Divrei Hayamim, which is mentioned, by the way, in the Megillah itself. Each um, king had a record, they, we call it in English, chronicles of the events of their particular reign. And the Persians included this composition that we call Megillat Esther in the Divrei Hayamim of Ahasuerus, or of Persia. And they were not people who worshipped or had faith in God, in, in our God, in the Jewish God, in God. They had faith in their own deities. So they would have taken this, the name of God in the Megillah, and they would, he says the same thing as Emmanuel Haromi, Emmanuel the Roman. Basically, Mordechai wanted to ensure he's adding context to what Emmanuel the Roman says. Why would they copy it? Because it was necessary for them to include this incredible story in the chronicles of Persia, of the empire of Persia. In that case, they would have copied it with God's name, but they would exchange the name of God for the name of their deity. And it's a greater glory of God if God's name is not mentioned in the Megillah. But, says the Ibn Ezra, and this is on a later pasuk, don't let that fool you that the Megillah is not a prophetic work. So now we're looking at the Megillah. From everything we've heard now, it's true that Mordechai had good reason to disguise God's role, the divine plan in the story of Esther and in the story of the deliverance of the Jews from genocide. Nevertheless, it turns it into a profane work. Says the Ibn Ezra, it's not a profane work. There are hints inside the Megillah that actually convey to us that it is a prophetic work. Look, says the Pasuk. This is in chapter Vav, Pasuk Vav. And this is, as you know, that um, there was a time, a, a particular night during the course of this story, Nadadash Nat Hamelech, right? The king couldn't sleep. He found it impossible to sleep. And he calls for his servants and he's very bored and he didn't have Netflix and he didn't have Amazon Prime and he didn't have any, he didn't have Hulu. He didn't know what to do. So in those days, the alternative to Netflix was you'd ask someone to read for you. Well, he was a narcissist. So what did he want to have read for him? The story's about himself. So he asks one of his servants to read from the book, the stories about himself. And they get to the story of Bigtan and Teresh, right? What was that story? That he was delivered from an assassination attempt by a man called Mordechai. Really, what did we do for Mordechai? And he's looking at the book, we never did anything for him. He, he saved your life, we never did anything for him. Just at that moment, Haman, comes and he wants to tell Ahasuerus, please, I'd like to kill Mordechai. Why? Because Mordechai is very rude to me. Every time he sees me, he, he doesn't bow down to me. He's terrible. I, I can't take it. Therefore, we should. I mean, in those days, clearly, it was much easier to kill people than it is today. Imagine if somebody doesn't say good morning to you, you then go to the police and say, that fella didn't say good morning to me. I think you should get capital punishment. It's a little exaggerated, right? But there you go. Haman decided that Mordechai should be hung on a tree and he comes to, he comes to Achashverosh. And Vayavo Haman, Haman comes, Vayomer lo Hamelech. And the king says to him, before he can open his mouth and tell him why he's there, the king says to him, Malasot bikaro. What should the king do with somebody um, the king desires to honor? 
what, what should the king do? Speaking about himself in the third person, right? Very pompous man, Achashverosh. He says to Haman, what should the king do with a person that the king desires to honor? Ans so before Haman answers, the Megillah says, Vayomer Haman belibo. And Haman says to himself, in his mind, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Another narcissist, right? Incredible. Two narcissists in the same room. Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. It was for Haman, by the way. So he says, who could the king mean besides for me? And obviously the king is hinting to me that he wants to show me great honor. Says the Ibn Ezra. From this pasuk we can derive the information that the Megillah was written prophetically. Who knows what goes on in a man's head? Except for Hashem. How does the Megillah know what Haman is thinking? What, there's a speech bubble above his, I mean a, 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 a thought bubble above his head? It's not a comic. How does the Megillah know what Haman was thinking? They couldn't ask him. He was dead. They hung him on a tree. So when they wrote the Megillah, how did they know? Prophecy. Ki im Hashem el avadav That Mordechai was a Navi. And in writing the story, he had prophecy that informed him that at that particular moment, Haman was thinking this thought. And therefore he included that in the Megillah. So we have very subtle references in the Megillah to the prophetic vision of the author of the Megillah, Mordechai. If you turn the page, page two, we're now at um, source number three. I'm going to go through it quite quickly, so I do want to get further down. So this is a Ramban that's not connected to the Megillah. It's connected to something else completely. You know, we put on tefillin every day. Why do we put on tefillin? What does it say in the tefillin? Shema Yisrael. Some type of, it's some type of sign. What, what is the sign in the tefillin? So the Ramban wants to say that we need to be reminded of the great miracles that took place in Egypt. And he talks about the difference between overt miracles and miracles that occur in people's lives or in the life of a community or a country that you don't necessarily recognize as miracles. But what he says is, even though you don't recognize them as miracles, if you know that there are such a thing as miracles, if you recognize the existence of miracles, you will see those things as miracles. So for example, I just give you a modern day example. We know that in um, 1967, in June 1967, there was a great threat to Israel. And all the Arab countries had decided that they were going to destroy Israel. Egypt had built an unbelievable air force, and together with Syria and Jordan, they were going to destroy Israel. And in six days, in an unbelievable uh, um, military campaign, Israel managed to vanquish its enemies completely and take the territory, which is today referred to as the West Bank, or Yudava Shomron, took the whole of Sinai, took the Golan Heights. It was an incredible, in six days, it was not a war that took Five years, six days. Was it a miracle? It's only a miracle if you recognize miracles. So if you know that there is such a thing as miracles, you look at the six-day war and you say, it was a miracle. But if you don't recognize miracles, you say, no, no, there was brilliant generals. Rabin was such a fantastic general. Dayan, Moshe Dayan was an unbelievable general, minister of defense. You can't believe how fantastic they were. The military strategy was brilliant. If you don't want to see the miracle, you won't see the miracle. Why? Because nobody told you in advance that this miracle was going to happen. There was no Navi. And there was nothing, no change in the natural order. It wasn't as if, you know, the planes that were meant to fly at 300 miles an hour threw, flew at 1,000 miles an hour. There was no miracle in terms of a subversion of the natural order. Therefore... You can't describe it as a miracle in the way that we describe, let's say, the Ten Plagues or Kriyat Yamsuf as a miracle. Says the Ramban, the reason, I'm not reading the Hebrew, the reason why we wear tefillin is to remind us of the miracles in Egypt so that we remember that there is such a thing as miracles, 
in order so that when miracles happen that are not overt, that we will recognize them for what they are, i.e. miracles. And what is the great example of that? As recorded in Tanakh, Megillat Esther. How would we ever know that this phenomenon existed if it didn't exist? So if every single one of the stories in Tanakh included the prophecy of a prophet and the overt mention of God's involvement, it's a divine plan, then you would never understand this phenomenon of a miracle that doesn't appear like a miracle, but is a miracle. The Ramban is telling you that we need to know about the existence of miracles so that when we see a miracle that doesn't lend itself to that interpretation for an atheist, that we see it for what it is, namely a miracle. And Megillat Esther is that foil in Tanakh. Megillat Esther is the story in Tanakh that is devoid of God, but which is nevertheless full of God. Let's look at the Gemara in Megillah. The Gemara in Megillah, this is source number four, <coughs> so mentions the posuk that I quoted earlier on, on that night, the sleep of the king was disturbed. He couldn't sleep. You know whose sleep was disturbed that night? Not Achashverosh. Do you know whose sleep was disturbed? The king of the world, the king of the universe. God's sleep was disturbed on that night. Amri, the rabbis say, if the ones in the upper realms are disturbed, then the ones in the lower realms are disturbed. So when God's sleep, as it were, is disturbed, obviously God never sleeps. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. But if God is going through a crisis, then down below, as it were, in the real physical world that we're familiar with, there is also a crisis. So when it says, it's referring to the Elyonim, but also to Achashverosh. Rava Amar, Rava says no. We're specifically talking about Achashverosh, not about God, not about the Elyonim and Tachtonim, about Achashverosh literally. So here we see in the Gemara, the beginning of an idea that we're going to see the Medrash takes a little bit further. That God's name is mentioned in the Megillah because the word Melech doesn't necessarily mean king in terms of a temporal king. It means king in terms of the heavenly king. So when it says, we're not talking about Melech Achashverosh. We're not talking about King Achashverosh. We're talking about the king of kings. And every time you're going to see the Medrash says the word Hamelech is mentioned, actually the Megillah is referring to the king of kings himself, to God. Says the Medrash. Every time when the word Melech is followed by the name Achashverosh, obviously it's referring to Achashverosh. The Melech Achashverosh hakatub medaber. Then that's what the Basuk is talking about. However, but every time it says without mentioning doesn't mention the name of the king just says the word says the medrash um, it's using both Kodesh and Chol it could be a reference to both the king Achashverosh and to the King of Kings, to God. In other words, God is mentioned in the Megillah. If you're looking for God, you'll find God. If you want to see God in the subtlety of the language, if you want to see God referred to in the Megillah, look for the word Melech and you will find him. He's there. He's just not mentioned in the, in the, with the use of the normal names that we are familiar with. Likute Sichos. Likute Sichos, as you know, is the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says something beautiful, because we still haven't answered a, a one very important question, which is why Megillas Esther, why this particular story is devoid of the mention of God. Says Likute Sichus, 
בפנימיוס הדברים. בואו אי הזכור השם השם במגילה לרמז. You have to understand, if you really want to get into the inside of this story, if you want to appreciate the essence, the פנימיוס of this story, not mentioning God's name is there to hint at a very important fact, which is, שעניין המגילה קשור לדרגה גבוהה של אלוקות. That the main aspect of the Megillah is connected to the most highest, most elevated spiritual ideas and ideals of faith that exist. It, everything is contained in the Megillah. The Megillah is the holiest of works. It's as if the reason the Megillah doesn't mention the name of God is because the name of God becomes irrelevant. Do you need to mention God's name in heaven? No, of course not. You don't need to mention God's name because it's evident everywhere that God exists. The Megillah is a holy place. It's the heaven of the 24 books of the Tanakh and therefore God's name is omitted. I'm going to end with two very nice pieces and they're in English. One of them is a, from a professor of Bible history. His name is Professor Michael Fox. Um, and he speaks about the ambiguity of God's involvement and what that means in terms of faith. God in Esther, he says, God in Esther is indeed veiled. As the popular metaphor puts it, a veil suggests that there is something behind it and invites us to look through. But when we look through this one, we do not see the sturdy old faith that so many readers assume must be back there somewhere. We see a light, but it shimmers. It's not clear. This carefully crafted ambivalence is best explained as an attempt to convey uncertainty about God's role in history. In other words, there is a reason that Megillat Esther has not made God a more prominent actor in the story and has drawn God, if at all, below the surface of the story with just a hint of presence. What is that? Perhaps the author is not quite certain about God's role in these events. Are you? And does not conceal that uncertainty. By refusing to exclude that possibility, the author conveys his belief that there can be no definitive knowledge of the, of the workings of God's hand in history. We all want to have that direct reference. We all want prophecy. We want the miracles. Because then we know for sure that God exists. Yeah, why should I believe in God if I'm not sure? Just show me one sign and I'll believe in God, right? That's what we're saying to ourselves. And Megillat Esther is telling us, no, real faith is when there is ambiguity. And when there is uncertainty, that's when real faith steps in. You know, when you read the story of Esther and you see God, then you have true faith. But if a prophet would have told you this was going to happen... Then you say, shrug your shoulders. Well, okay, I'm obviously it's going to happen because God made it happen. But when you come on to faith, when faith isn't possible, that's when faith has value. Continues, not even a wonderful deliverance can prove that God was directing events in Megillat Esther, nor could threat and disaster prove his absence. The story's ambivalence conveys an ambiguity, conveys the message that the Jews should not lose faith if they too are uncertain about where God is in a crisis. Events are ambiguous, and God's activity cannot be directly read out of them, yet they are not random. That's the point. Don't imagine that just because you can't see God's hand in everything, that God's not there. Exactly that's the point. Events are not random. He continues, when we search carefully the text of Esther for traces of God's activity, we are doing what the author made us do. That was Mordechai's intention. He wants us to search for God. The reason why he obliquely references God in the prophecy, in mentioning that this was what um, Haman was thinking, is because he wants us to say, oh, one second, how did he know that? Oh, he could only know that through prophecy. And when he makes us look at the word Hamelech, and wonder to ourselves, is it talking about God or is it talking about Achashverosh? That's exactly what Mordechai wanted to achieve. The author, says Professor Fox, would have us probe the events that we witness in our lives in the same way. 
He is teaching a theology of possibility. And one final piece from Rabbi Yitzchak Yitz Shalom, who uh, taught together with me at Yula, gives the Dafyomi Shir at Yik, and this is from his uh, writings, fantastic piece. He says there's something else here which is truly wonderful. God as represented in extraordinary human beings. There is more than one way in which God's name becomes glorified in this world. Besides an overt intervention, okay, so we're thinking to ourselves, I'm adding this in parenthetically, an overt intervention would be Kriyat Yamsuf. That's always the best example. When God split the Red Sea, that's obvious. It is possible, he says, for human beings to make his name manifest by demonstrating the most noble of traits. We can become God in the story when we do things which are extraordinary, greater than the sum of our parts. Keep in mind that we are all created in God's image. That's what we are. Tselem Elohim. That's who we are. We are in God's image. And when we demonstrate the most noble side of human existence and utilize those traits in the most productive manner possible, there is another certainly more subtle, demonstration of God's power and glory. You don't need to mention the name of Hashem for Hashem to be in the story. If you are Hashem's agent, it is possible for a miracle to take place within the realm of human valor. Although, unless the people in question take the next step and utilize this experience to enhance their direct relationship with God, it may be that the whole enterprise would be considered a vain effort. It's true. The involvement, the human involvement, the extraordinary power of a human being to do good is only something which can bring God into the story if you bring God into the story through that and your relationship with God is improved as a result. The most... The two most noble human traits, each of which is a reflection of the Tselem Elohim, which sparks all of us, are wisdom and courage. I'm not talking about wisdom or courage in the usual sense, he says. Rather, about a special kind of wisdom, a unique type of courage, and a special synthesis of the two. It is these two that exemplify the heroes of our story, Mordechai and Esther and the Jewish community that they so inspired. If you look at the story, the extraordinary element of the story, God in the story, is God in the people who are the heroes of the story. Mordechai, the hero, who takes it upon himself to save the Jewish world, and Esther, who intervenes and does things which are extraordinary, and the Jewish community of Shushan, who rallies around these two heroes, they become God in this story. Not Hashem prophesied and there was a splitting of the Red Sea. The extraordinary part of the story is the human valor, the courage, the wisdom of those who made the events happen in the way that they did. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you. Do you have a class next Wednesday? Mm-hmm.